your life and your conversations and like how you interact with people is not the season finale of any sitcom. Welcome back to the I'm Lost So What podcast. This is your host, Cassandra Lay. And in today's episode, I'm super excited to bring to you a conversation with my friend Naila of The Content Witches. Naila King is a storytelling strategist and founder of The Content Witches, who works with conscious leaders to help them translate their unique impact into client success through conscientious storytelling. All of that sounds beautiful. And in today's conversation, we are covering what actually is conscientious storytelling. How do you create spaces of belonging through words and language? Surprise, surprise, we get into how conscientious storytelling is a factor of that. And of course, Naila and I, we chat all the time through WhatsApp, and we love sharing petty energy opinions. So at the end of this conversation, you'll get a little taste of Naila's petty energy opinions, rapid fire style. And throughout, there are some really great uh, pieces of information here around storytelling, the stories that we tell ourselves, and some really good reflective questions for you all. I'm just excited to dive into this. And before we get into the actual conversation, I do want to share a content warning that there are talks of anxiety and depression. Without further ado, Here is our lovely conversation with Naila. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm Cassandra Lay, and you're listening to I'm Lost, So What? The podcast exploring between belonging and carving your own path. For all the peeps out there who kind of know what you're doing, but still question, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, I'm with you. Hi, Naila. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I am super excited to have you on the I'm Lost So What podcast. Uh, We were just talking about cats and children. (laughs) And we're not going to be talking about that in this episode, but we are going to be kind of discovering and exploring topics around conscientious storytelling, something that you actually provide for your clients. What spaces of belonging through words and language look like? And well, in our WhatsApp conversations, I love our petty parties. So we are bringing a little bit of that into the podcast and kind of doing a rapid fire petty. How how would you describe it? Like a petty, it's not really a petty party. It's like rapid fire petty questions, petty bounce around, petty event session. I think like petty opinions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Okay. So at the end of this episode, uh, we will be getting into petty opinions. So I'm super excited. There's lots to share, really. I think it's going to be quite a discussion uh, with (laughs) a little shadiness, a little pettiness sprinkled in. (laughs) It'll be a a dose of reality or not, or they'll look at us or be listening to us and be like, these two, who do they think they are? But it's my podcast. So whatever. (laughs) Well, to quote one of my favorite reality TV podcasters, to quote their favorite, people will do anything but start their own podcast. So they are welcome to. Oh my God. Start their own podcast. <laughs> oh, have you seen, do you know the Instagram account? I don't even know what their handle is. It's the guy that holds the cardboard signs. Do you yes. know what talking about? I don't know them by name, but I do you know either. that their like, content is in the ether. Yes. So actually one of the posts that they shared of them holding like a cardboard sign was don't start a podcast, just go to therapy. And I was like, hmm, yeah, yeah. I think even before therapy, just get a journal, work those ideas out on your own. And I say this coming from a place of like, 
I used to journal a lot and then the internet happened and now I'm like slowly making my way back to journaling. And uh, I just think journaling is a great practice for working things out. Not everything needs to be a podcast or to be on the internet and like not everyone can access therapy. So yeah, a journal is great. They're typically, they're very affordable tools. They are. (laughs) I love that. I have a question for you. This is, I mean, before we get into it, did you ever have a Tumblr or a live journal? I had both. I think I deleted it. Well, I still have a Tumblr, Good. like technically, but it's obviously private. And it was more like a music journal. And then I had a live journal during my teen years, which I respect the decision to delete it. But I think just because like, I was still figuring it out in terms of like emotions and like just really going through it, like from a depression perspective. So I think I kind of missed that culture of like just being able to say to go online and kind of say your truth you know that's not harmful obviously but like what you were feeling and your emotions and kind of working through all of those things as like a young person I feel like TikTok and all that stuff probably works for some people but yeah I kind of miss the like I talk about this a lot in my essay series maybe too much actually is that like I miss the old internet I miss the old internet but now yeah, I find myself like, I don't know if this is just like moving towards grandma core, but like, I just find myself more like I want to get offline and yeah, start journaling again. I'm like, it's both a return to the past mm. in terms of I used to journal on paper and do all that. And also just kind of walking away from like social media from like a personal perspective. Mm. I obviously have a business account, but yeah, I'm just not finding it fulfilling. But I do miss the like Tumblr of it all. Same. I was just talking to uh, one of my other friends and we were talking about how long we've been on the internet. And I was telling them, you know, I had like a little bit of a come to life moment where um, I was like, am I going to be creating social media content when I'm like super old about how to, you know, grow your account? Like, am I going to be creating content about creating content? Is this my life? But before we get into that, because I feel like there's lots of things. Um, I think also when I get into the questions about conscientious storytelling, I feel like exploring more about Tumblr and what you were saying about the old internet and kind of just coming on and really sharing, I think, just your emotions and like without judgment or without fear that somebody's going to literally come and attack you in your DMs or in your comments. Also, I know like some people process on TikTok and I've seen those videos and they are unhinged and lovely and like they totally hit a spot for me too. But sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't know, this is for me. But anyways, okay. So before we get into all of that, I always like to start every interview with the question, what does being lost mean to you? And can you describe that feeling of being lost and your experience with it? Um, I mean, I think I had sort of several, I think this is like seasonality, but for me, the metaphor of like, floating or being really untethered kind of encapsulates the whole feeling of being lost. Mm. Because when I think about what's the opposite of being lost, I think about like physically being grounded to a space, um, whatever that means to you, and being like tied to something. And being lost is kind of the sense of you're just floating and it's directionless and it's almost like an empty space. You just like, it's not navigable because you can't like, see forward or feel your way forward. And I guess like, I can't really think of one experience of feeling lost because 
one, like my experience with depression, like complicates this. And two, for me, it's seasonal. I go through periods, especially since I've started my business, where I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what direction to go in. And this is always where I also find myself being like, maybe I need a business coach or a business strategist because I just don't know. I feel directionless, but sometimes it's also just leaning into the feeling of being lost and just seeing what comes from that. And it's not always negative. It's made me realize that like, I really miss having a creative outlet Mm. and maybe making my way back to creative writing because I was commissioned for something that I submitted to like back in Canada. And I was submitted for like a big Canadian writing prize. You can Google that. Amazing. But I I didn't long list or anything, but speaking of being petty, but I didn't long list. <laughs> but I haven't really written anything like new, new since like before NaNoWriMo, which was an interesting experience. Yeah. So I kind of feel like the experience of being lost is like also, again, just making your way back to like stuff you used to like and stuff you used to do. So yeah, that's kind of my long-winded way of saying it's like the feeling of being untethered to stuff or anything, but also like maybe looking backwards to see if there's something there to like make you feel grounded. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I like what you said too about how being lost is not necessarily like negative. It's definitely an experience. Uh, it's something, but I don't know if it's always like a negative experience because sometimes I feel like I mean, this might sound super cliche, getting lost allows you to kind of just what you were saying, really come back to things that grounded you before things that like, were fun and creative. When you were talking about the like having a creative outlet, do you think, well, two questions, do you think that we as a culture society have kind of moved away from creative outlets because of social media? Um, and like literally capitalism telling everybody that we need to monetize all the things to make money, which I am all for like, okay, if you want to make your money, then make your money. But also sometimes not everything needs to be monetized. And then also how have you found like making time for your creative outlet as an adult who has like responsibilities and like life stuff? Yeah. So I guess I'll address the question about the monetization of it all and like a creative practice. Writing is like challenging because there's always this latent expectation. Like you can't just write something, especially if you're in like a literary circle or like if you've been published before, which I have like several short story publications and I've been being asked for at least five years since one of my last stories got published to like really work on something long form. And through my part-time job, every time we have a meeting, they do a free write. It's just based on like a random prompt. I have like yet, like once we like read them out, I don't go back to them. And I almost wish I had the discipline to just like do a free write with like no expectations. But I think that's like the machine of creating art right now. Is that Mm -hmm. like it always has to, some there always has to be like a final product and Some of this is like individual responsibility. I would love to just like write in a journal and leave it on a shelf. But there's always a part of me that has these ambitions to like publish a short story collection, to publish a novel. So I think it's really challenging as a creative, especially right now, 
to kind of navigate those worlds of like, you created something, you want to share it, you want to obviously be paid for what you shared. So you have to go through these kind of commercial markets. And it's just, it's just a really tricky time. But I always think that the antidote to that might be picking something that is new to you and like, you have no desire to like, take it any further. So like, Mm. I've always wanted to like do like salsa, but I'm not going to become like a salsa, premier salsa dancer. But I mean, I guess anything's possible, but I like that seems highly unlikely. And that seems like something that could be just like, you show up to your dance class, you have a good time and you go home. I think the challenge with having a creative practice that you've been doing in my case since you were before kindergarten is like you've had time to refine and practice it. Mm -hmm. And so it seems almost like a waste, quote unquote, to not like do anything with it. So that would kind of be my like unsolicited advice. It's like, if you have something that you've been really cultivating, try something that you haven't cultivated and like give yourself permission to be bad at it. Because chances are you're either going to work towards improving that or you're just going to be having fun doing it. And I know that like a lot of my friends who are creative, um, that's what they've had to do. They've had to pick something and just like have the courage to be quote bad at it and like just do it in and of itself. But I think it's really challenging. It's like you've been doing art for years or you went to school for years for that, or you did a master's in creative writing to not do something with it. Cause that's the like cultural and social yeah. education. And then the second question. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty bad at this. I like, I, think you have to be really intentional about it. I can only speak from like the creative writing perspective. I don't know about any other disciplines, but like, I think I'm still a bit old school in that sense that like, it's just going to happen. The the creativity will spark one day. And like, I am probably the case study of like, maybe, or you might be four or five years out from your last publication, which isn't to say that what you're doing is not writing. There's a lot of mental stuff that happens with like plotting and everything. But I would say, unless you're creating like an active practice, so like, I'm not like a workshop person. I don't really enjoy those spaces. I don't really like writing groups. So especially as I've like gotten older and like my anxiety and depression kind of comes into a greater play. But for me, being intentional probably would be to maybe take some more classes and just like actually build a time to do it. When I was doing NaNoWriMo back in November, I set aside the like 20 to 30 minutes every morning and it was stressful, especially on days where I was like busy with client work and stuff, but like things got done. They, it didn't like live in a vacuum. So I think the challenge, I'm hesitant to be like, just make time because I don't know people's like lives and commitments. Yeah. And, like, I'm not, I don't have children. I don't have like certain, I'm not a caretaker. I don't have certain responsibilities, but I think the biggest advice that I've gotten and my friend Shelly Knight runs like a writing sort of and publishing adjacent studio. So if you are a creative writer, check that out. Um, is kind of either reclaiming pockets of time. So like mm. if you're if you're waiting in line for anything, that's probably like a good time to write. And then yeah, just being intentional about creating that space. Whatever that looks like to you. Maybe not everybody can be Stephen King and write daily, but Whatever that looks like to you, it might be like Saturday mornings are your day. I think that's the challenge is just making sure that you pick the time and then kind of stick to it. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I do feel like I am more easily distracted because of social media. So the pockets of time that I think I could be, you know, giving myself 
that time to explore whatever creative endeavor I am curious about gets eaten. And so I have to like actively kind of push back when my hand or arm automatically goes to grab uh, my phone. And then next thing you know, my finger automatically touches Instagram button or TikTok button. And then once that, once I touch that button, especially TikTok, I'm out for like two hours. I have to like really actively and consciously be like, okay, stop, put it down, grab something else, which is very interesting. Um, I feel like that would have to be like a whole other podcast to like talk about, you know, our addiction to all of these things. But I want to get into um, the conscientious storytelling. And especially since you are a writer, you have published work. What is conscientious storytelling for all the people who are listening? And they're kind of like, what does that mean? Because um, in marketing terms, we always talk about storytelling. Use stories to sell. Everybody loves a good story. If you work in media or film, then you know, okay, what is the story arc? We love just hearing about people's stories. We love reading people's underdog stories. But what actually is conscientious storytelling? And how does that actually apply to not just work, I guess, and like marketing, but everything that we do? So conscientious storytelling is just like my kind of umbrella term of like lots of different principles and and concepts. So like obviously it brings in inclusive language and like content and um, context is like a big one. Citing your peers is another big one. But ultimately it's about when we're creating storytelling narrative around our businesses to kind of do that responsibly, to be conscientious about it, to make sure we're not um, being harmful in the language and narratives that we're putting forward. And this includes doing things that might be harmful to ourselves, like sharing really overly traumatic stories of things that may have happened to us and putting ourselves out there and our personal pain for the sake of maybe promoting something, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm always careful to be mindful of the fact that I do have these lived experiences that have, you know, created like challenging outcomes for me, but I try not to position that as like something to like use as a lesson or like use as positioning on like a sales page because like one, I don't know my reader that might that might they might have their own personal experiences that, you know, this might be upsetting for them to come across. And I also want to keep some things for myself. So yeah, just kind of like that's like the basic example I see a lot. It's like sometimes people taking their like personal, like personal stories and kind of sharing them in maybe not so appropriate context. So like, Mm. yeah, on like a sales page. And then the kind of biggest example of something I personally do not consider to be a conscientious storytelling tactic is like using Cinderella stories because Mm. there's a lot of context missing from those. Very rarely do we cop to like any help. Do these people cop to any help that they've had or any like, like generational wealth? Like there's so much context that goes into like, how people become successful or whatever. And I think the whole rags to riches Cinderella story, and I've talked about this a lot in my blog as well. It just kind of sets up a like narrative that you have to have this like big elaborate story to like find success in your business or like kick off your business. And that's like not really everybody's experience. Like the average person takes like five years, to, up to five to eight years to kind of kick their business off and this whole notion. And there's many versions of this that they had a laptop and a dream. And then eight months later, they were making, they were doing 10,000, you know, a month, month. And like, I can't deny that that's probably some people's experience, but 
I just think it sets up a poor precedent and it's not, it's just not the type of story that we should be like constantly trying to churn out or like trying to frame our own story as like, you should tell your story as your story, you know, plays out. It doesn't have to, you don't have to stuff every story of yours into these kind of dignified narratives to make them resonate with people. So that's kind of an example of like what conscientious storytelling is and also what it is. Mm, I love that. Um, the rags to riches story. In the online business space, I see the rags to riches story all the time. And it's an easy story to use because it like we all kind of know that that's what people kind of like seeing. Whether it's harmful or not, they might not be, you know, we might not be fully aware of how that narrative like really creates this weird dynamic of not just that, oh, success looks like this. Like you go from racks to riches and like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, you're now living the life. But I think as somebody who either could, could be starting their business or even just anybody wanting to do anything, now they're looking for those types of stories in their life. And I feel like I've had this situation where I don't know if it was with my business or something else, but I started feeling like, well, who am I? Because I didn't go through like hardship or I don't have like a, oh, I had this like laptop and a dream and then I did everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, So then it makes me almost like feel that like my story is not worth sharing and that I need to almost like create something like that in my life to start sharing. And yeah, I feel like that's one, it's a little harmful, maybe not a little, it's a lot harmful. And it really skews the stories that actually are seen, I think, in like mainstream media. I don't know how you feel about that, but those are my thoughts. I mean, yeah, it's it's the whole like one type of story because like, again, I can't make totally sweeping generalizations, but from what I have witnessed, it's typically somebody who actually just has access to generational wealth. Um, or a partner who's willing to help them. And like, that's certainly part of my story. But, you know, I had to get a part-time job when I was low on funds. And I'm happy with that decision. It wasn't like Ben got another job and I just kept going, you know? So I think it creates one type of story. And then the, the demographic of the people who perpetuate this story are people who are more likely to have access to generational wealth they have more access to more tools and more support, whether that's like funding, grants, et cetera, et cetera. And people tend to get salty with me about this. It's not necessarily that having access to those things is, is a bad thing, but if there's only one type of story and you cannot access the things that make that story possible, then it makes your story seem less than yeah. or like give you the false personal perception that my story is not good enough or my story mm-hmm. won't resonate because it's like this type of story. And I always wonder, because I wrote about this on Instagram as it pertains to like the three act, that is it popular because people really enjoy it or is it popular because it keeps getting regurgitated? Mm. Wait, do you want me to answer that question or is that more like a rhetorical for the audience? Because <laughs> I'm like, hmm. That's, I mean, it's rhetorical for the audience, but I think it is like something to reflect on in terms of, when you're trying to create stories, is this the story that feels true to you because it's your truth? Or do you feel like, oh, I read somewhere that this is the formula to use to like convince people to buy stuff. So that's what I should use. Yeah. 
or get recognized for something or I don't know, get an award or, or, you know, get into mainstream media or get a viral TikTok video or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And who decides like what's mainstream, like who decides, like, again, I think it's creating this like monolithic, like storytelling culture where the goal is to like be viral. And yeah, I just think it's creating like a particular type of narrative that we keep seeing over and over again. And like, I just don't think it's like interesting in addition to it being like harmful and all the things we've um, discussed. That's like a quick way to get me to like turn off. Mm. Right. Um, And I think like Maggie from BS business always points out about like the consumer getting savvier and savvier and savvier. And I think like your audience on social media is getting more savvy and more skeptical that like, as soon as I see a storytelling formula and that could be just like picture this, You know, like I'm already tuning out. Mm. So I think there's lots of layers to, you know, why conscientious storytelling is valuable. It's a more, you know, it's a more respectful way of sharing stories, certainly. But also like you're dealing with a population that like is debunking and used to debunking these tropes. So like, I think it's time for uh, online business to grow up a little. And like, there are lots of storytelling archetypes. The three-act story, which is kind of like the Cinderella story, is like a very like Western way to tell a story. Mm. So there are lots of ways to tell a story. I think just like, if you can take away nothing from this part of the discussion is like, does it make sense? Did your life happen with a, you know, inciting incident, rising action and climax? Like, does that make, does your experience make sense in that framework? Because I would say that like, especially as an online business owner and based on like what folks have shared with me recently, it's more like this. Yeah. It's more like a wave. So like already it's not like that whole storytelling framework isn't going to work for me. I would love to be able to say I got a laptop and my dreams just, you know, there was one, there was one soul challenge and then it ended off with like, I am living the know, life, eight fig- living the life, an eight figure entrepreneur whatever figure we're at right now seven eight nine um but that's not really my story i don't know anymore i think i saw seven Um, i think i saw seven or eight too and i'm like how many zeros is that like i had to actually count because i was like eight figures what is that that's another thing like did someone just decide that like millionaire wasn't cool enough are we trillionaires now are we billionaires wait is it billionaire and then trillionaire billionaire billionaire okay okay which is actually even more confusing because in Spanish, Mario and I always get confused because I'll be like, un millón. And then he's like, wait, is that mil millones? And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, I think in the US, the way you describe one million is, or one billion is different than how they would describe it over here. So we, when it gets to those larger numbers, we we just get confused. But anyways, um, I have another question to ask you about conscientious storytelling. How well, I guess I don't know if this is really conscientious storytelling, but how do you balance your creative writing with writing for clients and the business? Because I mean, we both work in marketing and copywriting. Um, and for all the people who are here who might not be doing that, we basically, or don't know what that is. We basically write to hopefully get people to buy. That is kind of like a crude way of saying it, but more or less. So how do you balance creative writing with all of the other marketing writing for yourself, for your clients, for your business? 
So for me, I mean, I kind of just treat them as like separate skills and separate buckets. I obviously mm-hmm. try to bring a sense of creative to my um, to my projects and how I work with clients. And that's, you know, typically the thing I tell clients is that like why my client stories, I think, stand out is because like I'm not married to one particular type of structure because I have this creative writing background. I will always follow where the story goes, which I know from creative writing is always in interesting and unexpected places. I think the challenge I have is like, I will be, you know, really showing up for a client. And I think you shared this in an email and then my blog will be dead. Like unable to be, you know, publish anything, have anything published that's new for like quite some time because I tend to batch that content. So I think it's not so much a divide between like creative writing and like more commercial writing. It's like, how do I balance writing for the business, like my business to make sure that my traffic and all that stuff is, you know, doing its thing, aka practicing what I preach versus when I have like a full client stack because I'm like a true solopreneur, like other than some odd changes that like maybe my boyfriend does on the back end from the website, like it's me by myself. It's not like he's going to start writing some blogs for me. So I think that's the bigger challenge because it's that constant push and pull of like, I got to show up for my clients and be there for them 100%. But like, if you're an earlier entrepreneur like me, you can't just like abandon your marketing because then you're going to make your, I'm not going to say that you're going to bring about a feasted famine period or you deserve it, but like, it's very hard to like, go through the sort of feast period and then you wrapped up your projects and then suddenly it's like tumbleweeds and then you have to put all that energy now into marketing yourself and creating that content marketing. Like it's a really big challenge for me and I wish I had like a best practice, but I'm still kind of figuring it out. I think Mm. that is harder for me than like making sure that I make the time for writing stories because I'm still kind of tied to a literary world, definitely in Scotland, but like certainly back home in Canada, I still have connections there. Mm, got it. Yeah. So then for all the people who might be struggling or chal- like working through this challenge, what, well, you said you don't have a best practice. So I guess, how would you, if you had advice, unsolicited advice, um, what would you share with them? I mean, I think it's all about balance. I know there's like people who are very like, you kind of got two camps, even though I hate binaries, but you've got the people who are like, just bath everything, book like two to three days about all your content. And like, there's low energy folks like myself who are like, that's great, but you got to have energy to do that batching. And then I think it's a post that you shared a while ago. You're also like, not, you're not as able to quickly react to like news or trends or anything like that so like if I were to give a best practice I think you kind of need a bit of both Mm. in your planning have some content that you batch but give yourself permission to maybe deviate from like a schedule or a content calendar if like something interesting to you has come up that you want to blog about or post about but I think it's like just making again it's being similarly intentional to making the time to do it within your capacity. If you're a solopreneur, it's maybe only realistic to publish a blog a week or maybe even a month, depending on your capacity, but just try to find your, like to measure your capacity, your kind of bare minimum, or to put it more positively, your, you know, your most 
viable product. So what's like, what's the thing that you can get done? Um, that'll move you forward in your marketing effort. So like, I try to most of the time, at least create a social post at some time. I try to keep up with my monthly newsletter. Mm. I try to publish a blog at least once a month, a new blog. And if I can't do that, then I go back to the archives and pull out old blogs and try to remix them in some way on social. So I think that's kind of my biggest takeaway is figure out what your capacity is as Mm. an individual and try to work within that to kind of create your sort of bare minimums of what you have to absolutely do. And then it's also, there's no shame in your game if you also reach out to people to get referrals, whether that's like, can you share, reach out to your network personally to be like, can you share these blogs? Or if you have a client who you think might be in alignment with me, can you share some of my Mm. offers or offerings? Or just do an introduction if you don't necessarily want to put a lot of pressure on the person for referrals. Yeah. Love all of That's kind of like my more official advice. So for all the people who are listening, basically I would just um, scroll back maybe 30 seconds and like note take on a lot of that because I feel like that is a really great quick action plan for you if you are looking for clients, if you want to kind of divide your if it's not creative writing, maybe it's like another creative thing that kind of like fuels all of the stuff that you're doing or want to be doing. I think what you said in like the way beginning when we were talking about this question or when I first asked this question was um, treating both as separate camps, I think is super important because one is commercial, one is supposed to be like a job. And then whatever creative project, if it's writing or something else, um, that is just like your space, a space for you to explore and maybe get lost in or um, kind of just, just see wherever it takes you. So moving on, now that we're talking about like spaces and stuff, I would love to know how you create spaces of belonging through words and language, because I know that's something that you specifically help your clients do. Um, and I think in general, in the world, uh, very important you know, to explore. So what does that actually mean to create spaces of belonging through words and language? Um, What does that actually look like? And can you share examples? It doesn't have to necessarily be in online business space, but maybe in other really life. What does that look like? Well, in life, I would say that like, show people some grace. I think that's always like a good Mm. tactic. I think because of social media, we are like, socialized to kind of think the worst of situations and like by extension, maybe people, I would say that like showing people some grace, being kind in a way that is just kind of hearing people out, getting to know them first, firstly, I think like, and you talked about this and I've talked about this in the essays too, like parasocial relationships are like really challenging how we relate to one another. And I don't think it's happening in the best way. So I think one of the ways to create belonging is to, leave any assumptions that you have at the door and just like kind of wait for people to let you know otherwise. I think, yeah, I think some some challenging takeaways of this culture is that like the hypervigilance of just like always kind of assuming the worst mm. of situations. And I think, yeah, showing some folks some grace when deserved, of course, um, could be really helpful. In terms of writing, using inclusive language, making your content accessible, really big ones for me. And then in terms of actual like hard kind of copy things, 
always make sure to include your accessibility information on sales page. Um, no one wants to go looking around to see if you have transcript, which you should. Um, yep. But that information should be readily available, whether you put it, well, I would reiterate it in a um, FAQ, but certainly if you have an online course, include the transcript information and any other accessibility features, like if you have interpretation or anything like that. And then in community spaces, the use of a braver spaces policy, making sure to be mindful of people's like privacy as it pertains to like data and those types of things is a great way to foster belonging. Creating rules around like confidentiality and what's shared mm-hmm. is another way, great way to convey and actually embody um, a space of belonging. So there's lots of different ways that you could do that. Trying to think of like in social media, I think in social media, being really clear about your like boundaries mm-hmm. as well. It's probably important for folks to know that if they're in your space and people are acting up in the content comments, you're going to like do something about that. Yeah, I think there's just like a lot of different tactics that kind of are in and around words and language. But those are kind of the big ones that stand out to me. I love these. Honestly, a lot of these are really great things that you can start implementing now, especially if you have an online business. Um, Something else while you were talking about this, like I know we were talking about it in the context of like business and creating a, a more inclusive space within your business. But I was thinking, especially because last season... I explored a lot about like friendships and just like relationships that I've had um, and like the transformation of these relationships. And a lot of what you were saying, I was like, have I talked about this with like, maybe not in such like a formal, oh yeah, here are like the expectations and the, I mean, maybe the boundaries would be important, but like, you know, here's the transcript to our conversation. No, but have I talked about this with the people who I think are really important in my life. So it could be like my friends, my family, my my partner. How can I kind of take what you shared and bring it into like my in-person relationships, which I think is actually almost scarier because I know I've had conversations with people who are like, oh, how did you get to the point in your business where you were like, like comfortable and brave enough to say that you are an anti-capitalist marketer. And I'm like, well, I mean, it just took time, you know, like I, it took me years to get comfortable saying these things. And then also years to build up boundaries for myself and what I feel comfortable with boundaries or, you know, strength, courage, bravery to share all of these things and not be afraid of like backlash or like losing money. It also takes a certain level of privilege to be able to say that and then be okay with like business not coming in. But I don't know if I've actually done that with like my personal relationships. Thinking about like my family for one, Um, that sounds like a conversation for therapy. Uh, We don't need to discuss this on the podcast, but like when have I actually approached, this is more like a rhetorical question for me, but like when have I approached maybe my partner and said, hey, this space is safe. I mean, it's implied, of course, but like maybe it's not because there could be certain topics that we would need to like reestablish you know, this brave space for both of us to share, because maybe it is a brave space when we're talking about like what to eat for dinner. But as we encroach topics, like we just watched Barbie and Mm -hmm. we were talking about how men and them breaking up the patriarchy and all that stuff. We started talking about that and I realized, oh, I started feeling uncomfortable. And I think if I'm a little bit more conscientious of, you know, setting these boundaries and stuff and like 
creating that brave space again, like we could reestablish it for the, that conversation so that both of us feel okay to share and to explore together without the other one kind of like reacting and getting upset. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Have you like applied this to your personal relationships and friendships? I mean, I think I like to go, I like to go into interactions giving people the benefit of the doubt and the caveat obviously being like, this doesn't pertain to like human rights things. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, um, yeah. Let's but, say that now, please. Yeah. I mean, it's littered all over my content, which is that I don't debate anything to do with that. People have the intrinsic like right to exist and be themselves. So I'm not here to debate that kind of thing. But like in terms of like minor, you know, dis- not disagreements, but like different ways of doing things or different approaches or different perspectives that pertain to like content, let's say, I like to be clear about like what I'm trying to get out of the interaction and like Mm -hmm. the out or the actual conversation to say, you know, I'm not here to debate you. This is kind of where I'm coming from. Feel free to share where you're coming from. And like, I try not to put like a big expectation that again, I think this is all around this like narrative that like everything should have a resolution that's like perfectly Mm -hmm. tied up in the bow but like your life is not a season, the season finale of like a sitcom, right? So I think- Oh my God. Wait, can you just say that one more time? Because I love that. Your life and your conversations and like how you interact with people is not the season finale of any sitcom. Yep. You don't need to like leave your life on a cliffhanger conversely, but like there's no pressure to be renewed. Like you just have to <laughs> go into interactions trying to hear people out and like be fair, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying not to sound like a diplomat because like, but conflict isn't always like aggressive or like yelling at folks or like mm. anything like that. Like sometimes a brave space is just coming to the table with someone being able to share like their perspective on like an interaction. It's not always like aggressive or negative or, you know, so I think that's kind of how I bring that. Confrontational. Yeah. Like I, that's how I approach it. And I'm not saying there's like a right way to do this or right ways to do this, but that's, kind of my perspective and then with family family is challenging yeah especially if you're an early entrepreneur and you come from like an immigrant family there's sort of two narratives which is that if you're an entrepreneur you somehow have more money than you do and then conversely people are almost like waiting with bated breath to like find out if you're gonna flop and I'm not saying this from like a your family doesn't want you to succeed but I think there's a dynamic, especially for like us, yeah. where it's so different from like what they envisioned us doing maybe. And it's hard for them to like communicate this with their friends or their peers or whatever. So like we've had to have conversations as a family to be like, my business is not up for like gossip, debate, speculation. Mm. Like this is a real thing that we're doing. And if we're not necessarily like comfortable being openly supportive which is a challenge a lot of us face, then I'm not comfortable having those conversations. It's not to say that like my business is not off limits, but like it is more generative to maybe leave that discussion off the table. And I think that is something that like a lot of solopreneurs and businesses of color and like other marginalized folks and people at different intersections are challenged by. Mm. So I think sometimes kind of furthering that braver space is like creating policies that protect everybody even if it doesn't necessarily make you popular because I know that people took great offense when I was like it hurts my feelings when like despite your best 
intentions, you come off as come across as glib about something that's really important to me. And I guess to like close out this tirade. <laughs> I love it though. Not like I'm like resonating. Not every conversation is like particularly take that offline. I'm sorry to say. Or, you know, work it out in a journal, um, in a journal entry, in a blog post, in like not everything needs to be digestible in a small bit of text. I would say that like we all have a very unique experience and we all have different ways of relating to each other. And I think maybe the being a line of it all, particularly in the three years, is like making that worse. Mm. Um, so maybe, you know, I know a lot of my clients and other people in like arts communities do have a policy where like if it's accessible to folks and conflict does arise and it makes sense, taking stuff offline is a way that they try to resolve whatever that resolution looks like. Resolution could be everybody, both parties block each other and <laughs> move on. But yeah, I think that's another way that kind of navigating these spaces of belonging could happen. Ideally, that's a last resort. I know that's kind of something that's a principle in transformative justice is to like make that kind of severing of ties the last possible resort, which is kind of how I like to move as well, because I'm, you know, really admire the work of Adrian Marie Brown. But yeah, that's kind of how I embody these practices or strive to embody these practices. I haven't run anything in a group in some times, but I did have a um, safer spaces policy and I, I have had to create some rules around like DMs and the like as well, mm. just because like people were salty with me over the clubhouse of it all and like being aggressive. But in general, I try to hear people out and be fair in that way. Yeah. I I feel like everything that you shared, I'm like, yes, I get it. Oh my gosh. Totally relate. And then also when you were sharing all of this, like this feeling kind of like bubbled up in my chest, I think it's like the tension of holding something that is uncomfortable instead of what I think normally, and I think what's happened, especially in the age of social media, is we tend to either, I guess there are multiple ways that people approach this. One, they let go of that uncomfortableness and they kind of just like move on with their lives and like, "Eh, don't see it, whatever. Um, And they totally like hide under the rug. Then there is like that, if you're feeling that tension and holding that uncomfortableness, you, I'm not saying you all in general, but what I've seen is that people will one hide under the rug, then they either turn into an attack. So then they take it public and then they go into like this whole spiel and give like a whole explanation and blah, blah, blah. And then three, they almost like try to justify. So they, similar to the second one where I was like, okay, they turn into attack, but like when... I see people justifying. It's almost like, okay, here's an explanation of like this whole thing so that I can like feel better about myself and get like sympathy points instead of maybe what you were saying, like, okay, I'm going to take this conversation offline because it is uncomfortable. There is tension and I'm going to approach it in a space of belonging where, or like a brave space where we can kind of have like this really candid conversation of just trying to understand where the other person is coming from. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but honestly, what you were sharing, I was like, Ooh, I feel like I've had this before. And I would feel like I've messaged you to be like, help. Um, 
but this tension and this uncomfortable feeling and kind of just holding it instead of letting it go or transforming it into something that doesn't need to live online. Yeah, it's interesting because Bear Hebert, Hebert, can't remember if they have an Oxante Gu on the E, they just posted this really incredible reel basically saying like, don't, and I'm deeply paraphrasing, so we will cite this source. Essentially, what I got from it is, you know, stop filtering, stop trying to access your attachment needs to social media. Mm. And I wish I had got that message like a while ago, which is a common comment, I'm sure, that they experienced. And I think I saw that they shared that. I think the internet made people feel seen. And it was at one point a place of belonging, especially if you have like, quote unquote, like niche interests or niche hobbies but I think again I find myself annoyed with myself because it's so obnoxious to be nostalgic about something that barely existed in actuality which is the old internet like that's my perception that's like one person's experience Mm. so I hesitate to be like I miss the old internet it was so great because that's how people rationalize you know wanting to go back to the past like this whole notion of the past is so fake But conversely, I do believe and said with my full chest that like when it became, when it was a place where like you could put something out there and like it could just be out there, like it felt good and affirming. And but now I'm realizing based on like what Bear shared, it's like, I think we would probably have to go back and unpack, you know, what's compelling us to share and what we're ultimately trying to like receive as a result of sharing. And I think that's kind of the mode that I'm in, certainly from a personal perspective, but as a business as well, where I'm like, okay, which is something I had to do because I was getting super frustrated with like two, two views on reels. And I constantly have to reel myself back in to say, well, you know, you're a smaller account. You've always struggled with engagement. Could it be generative to like give yourself permission to just put something out there to keep up with for the sole purpose of keeping up with your content marketing goals and to improve at your video editing and whatever? Like, I'm really trying to remove myself from like the self-worth part Mm. of being a business owner on social media. Because I just, maybe that's my thing I don't think we're talking about is, I think we assign so much value to like being perceived as doing well on social media when like, I can't speak for everybody, but like, I'm a referral queen. I get my business from people referring me. I get my business from people referring me because they love my content and like not my social media content, but my blogs. So I think if we could get to a place where we all take that away and sit with ourselves to be like, I'm posting. Why am I posting? What am I expecting as a result? And is that result fair to me? Hmm. Is it fair knowing everything you're up against in terms of like, we're very distracted. We have a lot kind of that we can access. We have access to a lot of like entertainment, you know, a lot of other solopreneurs. Like, is it fair to be like, oh, well, it's a marker of my worth if my real only only two people saw it. Mm. And I also think of like, I can't remember which practitioner, but someone said that don't make comments about audience members that you wouldn't make to your face. No one would go into a room 
and be on a stage and say there's only 12 people here. Can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that yeah, that really puts things into perspective. Right. And so what she was saying is when you go on social and you say only five people liked it, it tells those five people that their like is less than. Mm. So you again, being conscientious, you have to like, shouldn't say you have to, you don't have to do anything. I'm not that prescriptive. But one of the things I'm trying to do is, you know, don't just talk about it, be about it. I would never go into a room. If three people were in the room who showed up to my talk, that's amazing. They took the, they find it interesting enough to show up. I would never get on stage and say, oh, there's only three people here. Like, imagine being persons one, two, and three. Yeah. So I think I'm just part of this and part of being conscientious and being mindful about storytelling is also the stories we tell ourselves. You know, like I'm yeah. guilty of creating a narrative of not enoughness that's like trickling down to my audience. And then conversely, which again, I don't call on others, I'm calling out myself. Conversely, to turn around and then be surprised that more people aren't engaging is yeah. interesting. It's an interesting tactic to to put, it's to say, oh, well, it's only 12. And then surprised that those 12 people don't come back or whatever that is. So I've just been really working on being honest about what I'm trying to do when I post something. But I thought Bear's post was like really nailed it. I wish I'd seen that six months ago mm-hmm. because I'm trying to, I don't know if it's like a validation thing or like a, a what's going on. I'm still unpacking that. But I think it's a two-way street. It's what we're telling our clients and we're telling our audience, but also what we're telling ourselves. Because, mm-hmm. And sometimes that means unfollowing the experts and stuff and kind of creating your own story and your own narrative. You know, I think that's my biggest takeaway going into a fourth year business is like, not everybody's story is your story. Yep. Not everybody's narrative is yours to take on. Like, what are you, what story are you telling? It's like Barbara Walter, may she rest in peace, was interviewing you and she's asking you about your life. Are you taking on someone else's story? Are you telling your own story? Mm. I think that's also part of the conscientious storytelling bucket. I love that. I I mean, at the end of this interview, I was going to be like, what's a journaling prompt? I would say that's number one. So y'all, if you're listening, note that down. But I will ask Naila again at the end of this, what a journaling prompt or exploratory question that she has for people. Um, I do want to jump into, I know we were talking all about conscientious storytelling and creating spaces of belonging. Uh, We're going to switch gears a little bit and get into petty energy opinions. I'm excited. I see you clapping over there. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so these are rapid fire um, questions. They are mostly about pet peeves. I have two. And depending on your answers, I may have more. So for all the people who work in the online business industry, what is one of your pet peeves of the online business industry? Uh, where, to, right. where, to, where to start? There are no. Um, I, I guess I have to talk about like the energy. Um, mm. People aren't keeping up the same energy. In my case, they weren't keeping up the same energy as 2020. Um, oh, uh, yes. When, when, when Threads launched, everyone was like, we need your writing. We, you're a writer. Be on Threads. And I just remember being like, I have a whole essay series with my writing. It's not free, but like, it's what, 200 characters over there? Like, I don't, I'm never going to use that space to like really dig in deep into topics because I don't have enough space 
to give context, which is something that mm-hmm. I had talked about a lot. That's why I literally started the essay series. So yeah, for me, the question is energy that people have for like emerging platforms. Like people had a lot of energy for Threads. People had a lot of energy for Clubhouse. Conversely, Clubhouse. not supporting Spill, a Black-owned um, social media platform um, from two ex-Twitter people. So that's interesting. So yeah, people just like not matching their 2020 energy is like my biggest like pet peeve right now. It's like, and Monique Melton talks way more about this and like arguably has more authority to talk about this. But in my like pocket of an experience, just like people just not having the same energy. Like Mm. it was all support black women. And now it's like, oh, well, we just want to access your threads, hot takes for mm-hmm. zero dollars is which is interesting but yeah people just not having the same energy as 2020 is my biggest one and then the second one oh there's more okay okay the second one is just like not having transcripts to your podcast i it's, yeah i can't take it and like the and then the attitude that i have gotten people are like mad and like i try to be like really gentle with it with my request to say hey like because again i have like some folks who need i know the one thing that I really treasure about having a quote small audience, which to me, they are everything they are. They are it's 10,000 people in my heart is I know who reads my content because they DM me about it. One of the things I love is that I have to get on truthfully is like I have audio blogs for people who self-identify as low vision and they really like love that I have that content. People also message me saying, oh, thanks for always having a transcript because I would I couldn't otherwise access it. Access it. So my biggest pet peeve is if people invite me on and I say, hey, look, I need a transcript. It's one of my boundaries on my speaker page. Try Tactique. It's a free um, it's a free tool because I know that maybe not everybody's in the position to like subscribe to like a descript or like any other paid tool or an otter. And the attitude I get often is like, well, you know, then I'd have to like either update my whole library or like then I have to do all this extra work. and. Yeah, like, I, I don't understand it. It is 2023. Like, there's lots of great educators. Like, Aaron Perkins is great. Like, Katie from Access Reimagined is great. Like, there's lots of great people doing lots of great affordable education. But yeah, that's my pet peeve. I can't, I can't take it. And I was previously struggling with, like, well, I think the struggle, particularly if you are a Black woman really in any space, particularly on my business, is like the struggle, this push and pull between being palatable and all this stuff. I really tried to be like gracious about it and like fair about it. And I'm just over being fair. If you don't have a transcript, don't even email. Like I'm just not going to respond at this point um, because I just don't want to have to like continue to have these like negative interactions where people are coming at me because they're not providing access. Yeah. Love it. Love these pet peeves. Takeaway from that is y'all match, match that energy. Really, really, I, I, like, there's, I a, cared, there's nothing else to say. I thought, we cared about, I thought we cared about inclusion and belonging in the 2020 all. We suddenly don't care, I guess. I don't know. Apparently not, because in the United States right now, um, any program in corporate I saw is uh, with the words DEI or race are getting defunded. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Well. Lovely times. We we could t- go a lot more into this, but I have more questions for petty energy opinions. What is another pet peeve that you have for living and working abroad? Because you live in Edinburgh. Is that how you say it? Um, I don't live in Edinburgh anymore. I will. Oh, that's right. Lived, I did. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's just like it's so behind and people get upset. 
when I say, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging to work with folks here because people have like expectations of what things cost from like 50 years ago, like, mm. or, sorry, like five years ago, like notwithstanding the cost of living crisis. Like I just had so many like interactions where people's, the budgets that I have been given for the work that I, that is proposed would horrify you. But, you know, I try to keep it classy. I think it's just like a knowledge gap. I think a lot of people don't say no, which is something that I talk a lot about in like one of my most like popular blog posts, which is like why I don't work for exposure. I think it's still a place where people are not saying no. Mm. And I am not afraid to say no. Granted, it isn't always cute. I told someone here no, and he like, pulled the bait and switch of like, well, I don't want to work with you anyway. And like sent like all this like rude Okay, that's some petty energy. <laughs> that's petty energy, which he was probably blocked. But yeah, I think like I, I don't know about living anywhere else. Um I don't think the UK has a digital nomad visa yet. So maybe that again, it could just be not a knowledge gap. I don't want to assume that it's malicious. I genuinely think people are unaware, but like Scotland is moving towards like spare work. And like mm. there are certain like published rates that have to be abided by as part of fair work. So like this could change. It's probably going to take at least four, three to four years to change. But that's kind of my pet peeve there is that like you're dealing with a country that's, you know, treating freelancers as like it's attitudes from like 10 years ago of just mm. like, oh, like I cannot pay you on time. I can do like lots of exposure apps, like that sort of thing. And I think. I think it will change, but that's my, that's my experience here. And also just like that everything, every event is in England or like every event is in the U.S. Like Mm, in terms of marketing and networking events and stuff like that. It would be nice if like more stuff was like Scotland based, but the sort of freelancer world is like more like graphic and text based. So I see kind of why maybe that's hasn't happened yet again it just feels like living in a time capsule it feels very 2011 over here in terms of (laughs) you know when I first moved uh to Spain I kind of thought the same thing because then I started working and like doing marketing and like business ownership here and I was like oh we're like 10 years behind which is not to say like there's like a official timeline to follow or anything like that but I was like why are we acting like what especially what you said about like budgeting and prices and all of that stuff um and then just like new ways to include and evolve basically with how you interact with like audiences and clients. I noticed that it's very antiquated where it's kind of just like, oh yeah, it's like a transaction. I'm like, well, it's not anymore. And it can't be anymore because people are looking for something different with businesses and whether you're a product-based business, service-based business, creator, whatever, they're not looking just for a transaction anymore. Unless like you go to a specific website, I guess like Fiverr or Upwork or something like that. They're kind of just looking for that, but that's like other senses. I don't know. Okay. So last pet peeve, energy, opinion, question, petty energy. I think I'm getting confused with my own title for this section. What is a pet peeve that you have just like one of your biggest, biggest pet peeves. This is like in general, it could be like relationships. It could be um, what we talked about today with conscientious storytelling. It could be business. It could be, I don't know, other things. Do you have one? Just like a general one. I have one. A general one? Mm-hmm. I have one that I always say. I mean, I think I, po- I posted it as a mood board, but I think I'm always like, 
genuinely fascinated with like the way people do not like cite or credit mm. black women um, mm. or like just like misrepresent their work or like the point of their work. I just, that's like, an, that's just like a general ick. It's, it's tapering off because, you know, I guess we're supposed to believe the 2020s of it all was a trend. We're kind of like fading into the background in terms of like what's being taken, which that's like a whole other podcast, like that we're moving, speaking of things being a high, that we're just like, we're evolving back to the 2000s, like the mm. early 2000s. So yeah, I think like that's ultimately my like it because I'll see stuff like quoted that I like know is bell hooked that I'm like, where's the citation, babe? Mm-hmm. Like, um, what if it was Brene Brown? They they attribute it to them. Mm. That is also another conversation. Um, nothing against Brene Brown, but I would just say there's yeah, critical kind of thinking think in there. You should cite all of your sources, but again, it's going back to like keep the same energy. Like I'm happy you're citing Brene. If she said it, cite her. <laughs> but, you know, it's just really interesting. Um, a peer of mine, Ojo Asi, um, who's a artist and like the best human, I will always cite their article about why you should cite Black women. But yeah, keep that energy, keep the same energy. Like, I don't know what dissipated in the last, like, definitely three years, but in the last six months where we're just like doing this. But that's my <laughs> ultimate ick. I love it. Um, I don't love it, but thank you for sharing because I feel like, most people probably don't even realize these things. And I feel like this is a very valid pet peeve. It's not like a pet peeve where, you know, it's just like something small and annoying. This is like literally, can you just acknowledge these things and at least give like the space for it? Whereas like some people might just be like, oh yeah, my pet peeve is like when people replace everything with emojis. Yeah, okay, that's like an annoying thing. It's very valid, but yours I don't think is like a very difficult ask. Yeah, I mean, that's like, again, an, another story for another yeah. time. But that's just like, I think it's what's petty about it is like, I just mute those people then, like immediately. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, that's, that's like where the petty comes in, where I'm like, if you're not, if you're someone who's not going to cite your sources, then like, insofar as you like, I get like, I literally had like a memory lapse to be like, who said that? I probably forgot to save it. But if I remember that, I'll ask Cassandra to like add the citation. But if there's people I'm like intentionally like I really love their work and I really want them to like to put respect on their name. Like I had saw Bear's thing. So I'm like, I really want to bring that up. I really have to make sure that I, you know, cite them. It was posted more recently so I can remember. But like I think I saw that other one like two years ago. I get that like there's a human error part of this, but like because to, to to pick and choose who you do it with is like very interesting to observe and witness. Mm. We're both eyeing you over here. You can't see us, but we're making faces. Um, okay. So last question before we wrap up this interview, uh, this is a question that, that I love and en- um, ending all interviews with is what is a nuanced conversation that you don't think that we are having enough of? I mean, I don't know that it's that it's, we're not having enough of it, but I think it's just, it's in specific circles and groups. Like we're not having a wider conversation of like what happened to all of those, like when, like the 2020 of it all, like how we move forward in online business. A lot of BPOC folks like are being kind of, it's kind of just like going back to the old way that it was, you know? I think those conversations are having, happening. Anko wrote 
probably my most cited think piece about like the challenges of DEI and cultural competency. And Connie Chu rightfully predicted that like these frameworks are what's causing us to like go to keep repeating these conversations. So like I guess the TLDR is like we haven't really unpacked like what we did or didn't learn from mm. this. And I wish we kind of talked about like how it's affecting, I mean, BIPOC like soulpreneurs in like greater numbers, but like you had not me so much, but other practitioners had a deluge of work. Yeah. That has now like evaporated. And we're just not talking about like we're not talking about it unless you are in those communities or unless you're like seeking out that information. Mm. And like I I would love for us as an industry to be more accountable and to talk about that because like if we were setting up this like false I don't know, like circular economy, then like we also have to then talk about like when it no longer serves people and those numbers dropped off, it's still people who still have businesses. Like some people pivoted. I find myself in a position of pivoting, but you know, some people, this is their like lived work, this is their life works. Like they shouldn't necessarily have to pivot. So yeah, I think that's a conversation that I would love to see more nuance around or just like for us to even have a conversation at all. Because if you were like, if you were one of those people who posted one of those pledges, then I want to know when's the last time you, a practitioner of color, if you were in the financial position to do so, when's the last time you like shared someone's content or referred someone? I think the nuance is sort of like everyone's, you know, the narrative is like everyone's struggling, but I think there's definitely layers to this. And yeah. I think I can't speak for everyone, but like, I feel like I'm personally like recovering from hmm that whole the 2020 of it all being positioned as a trend i guess is a conversation i want more nuance about and also just like to have a conversation at all yeah Mm, something to definitely think about um i feel like i'll be messaging you about this after our conversation on whatsapp so to end the interview conversation i always love ending with journaling prompts or exploratory questions for people. Do you have a journaling prompt, aside from all of the other amazing ones that you shared sprinkled throughout this conversation? Uh, do you have a journaling prompt, exploratory question, or exercise for the people listening to explore either any of the pet peeves, petty energy stuff that we just talked about, spaces of belonging through words or language, or even conscientious, story- conscientious storytelling? This one's maybe a bit out of left field, but I feel like it's so grounding in terms of our like story type storytelling practice, I always ask people to think about their favorite story or the first story they heard that they really, really liked. So like, for example, my mom's an oral storyteller. We love a book, but like some of my favorite stories are the ones that she told me about her neighborhood in Barbados. Mm. So what is your favorite story and why? Mm, I love that. I will use that as a journaling prompt for um, tomorrow's journaling session. I'm getting like all of these really great journaling prompts from these interviews. And I'm like, yay, I just journal about like my feelings, but like these are even more fun. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think I think the answer might surprise people, but it's my favorite question to ask because it tells us, it gives us a lot of information about the stories we tell. Mm, okay. I'll journal it. I'll get back to you. I know. Get back to me. I want to know. I'm like, I was just thinking when you were saying that too. And I was like, what is a favorite story that I have? 
And the first thing I thought about were like different movies that I've really enjoyed. And, you know, funnily enough, the most memorable ones are not Western made movies. They are movies that were written, directed and filmed in other parts of the world that just had like a totally different type of story that like sticks with me. And I've just held on to it. Anyway, that'll be for my journaling exploration. Y'all don't need to have me journal live on this podcast with you. Um, So thank you, Nyla. Thank you so much for being here. I have uh, really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like we chat all the time through WhatsApp, literally almost every day. Um, But I don't think we've had the chance to like just sit and talk about this and like me getting the chance to learn more about you and like your whole thought process and like all of this stuff. So this has been lovely to hear all of this. Um, is there anything ex- that you are working on that you're excited about in the upcoming months? Feel free to share about it here for other people to know. Um, so I just launched the client storytelling, client story copywriting um, one-to-one service. So if you are someone who needs support showcasing your expertise, definitely check that out. Um, there might be a kind of strategy version of that. So stay tuned. I might do NaNoWriMo again. Ooh. It feels like glutton for punishment a little bit. But yeah, um, I am trying to work on a longer work. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Ooh, I'm excited. I think we talked about NaNoWriMo um, and potentially being accountability. And then I was like, I don't know. I get scared thinking about it. Anyways, um, we'll talk about that in WhatsApp later. Uh, can you share where everybody can reach you, where they can find you? Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn at The Content Witches. Uh, I am on Instagram as uh, King. That'll be in the show notes, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you can also subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, it's monthly. I it's a poor best practice, but I think I post I do a sales email like twice a year, so it's mostly just <laughs> me coming into your newsletter or in your inbox as a newsletter like once a month. But you can access that through the website at www.thecontentwitches.com. Awesome, and all of those links will be in the show notes as well as I think all of the references and people that we talked about. So if you all wanted to explore any of the people or resources that um, Naila mentioned in this episode, then I will also include them in the show notes. Well, y'all, thank you, Naila, so much for this conversation. Thanks you all for whoever's tuning in. Um, If you have questions about this, you can send me a, what is it? A DM (laughs) Um, on Instagram at Cassandra T-O-E and we will see you in the next episode. Stay fierce, fam. If you're hearing this message, that means you made it to the end of the episode. Yay. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation and had an idea on future topics you'd like to see covered on the podcast, send me a message on Instagram at Cassandra TLE with your idea. If we decide to explore the topic, we'll also give you a shout out. Want to hang out with me in other areas of the internet? Subscribe to the Doing Good newsletter to receive exclusive access to personal musings from me and podcast guests. Find the link in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. Thank you and see you in the next episode. Stay fierce, fam.